Help me welcome Reverend Bob Carden. Okay. Well, as Garrett mentioned, on Friday we had our family night. Please be seated. We had our family night, and it was a packed house. And uh, I woke up on Saturday, and I couldn't talk because it was like being at a wedding reception. And uh, so I'm thinking, well, that's fine. I'm not teaching until Sunday. Well, this morning I woke up, and I couldn't talk. I'm getting out of bed, and it's, my mouth is moving, but the sounds aren't coming out. So Susan prayed for me, and I began to get better. Then we, we come here, and she said, now, don't use your voice so much. <laughs> Do I talk a lot? Is, that, is this what we're saying here? Don't use your voice so much. Said, okay, okay. This is yeah, so, but then, you know, we, we, we had our, our team meeting at, the, at 8, and then we did our prayer time. And then after that, as we're fellowshipping, I just went over to the couch over there, and I asked uh, Carolyn Drake to pray for me, to pray for my voice, uh, so that I could share God's word. And... Uh, you might think I'm sounding a little gravelly today, but I'm sounding. Okay, so that's good. You know, uh, before I get into what I wanted to share, which is your true value, uh, I wanted to take you back a year. Because a year ago tomorrow, I was on this stage with the Bovas, the Blacksmiths, and the Mendova, Mendozas as God transferred to them the leadership of this ministry so that they could pursue God's will for us as a family together. And it has been quite a year. (laughs) We have a lot to celebrate. We have a lot to be thankful for. And, you know, no, no man or woman or even team actually leads the church God is overall, Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the church, and we just follow him. And I have been so thankful the way these six ministers have followed God in new and unexpected ways. Yeah, it's just been a great blessing. Because it is always easier and more comfortable to stay with the familiar. You know, even, when the, even if the familiar is not much fun, it's familiar. Uh, but you don't get the true nature, glory, and power of God unless you are willing to follow him into the unknown. And by the way, it may be unknown to you and me, but it's not unknown to him. So since he, he has been there, he knows the way, he knows the end before the beginning, we can safely follow him. And, you know, our church, which is, which is not this room, It's not even our extended family online. It's the whole body of Christ. We're just a part of it here. God allows us to fellowship together as a family. And God's goal is not to fill meeting rooms. God's goal is to transform lives. And I have seen many lives touched and transformed, bodies and also souls healed because of God's love and God's watchful care for us. Uh, And this is only the beginning. So I want to thank you all for your love, your patience, and your prayerful support. I don't know if you realize it's been a year since we've been doing this, and it's great. Well, now let me go to what I'd like to share from the Scriptures, which is your true value. Uh, And I want to show how God changes your value 
by his love. You know, people think of love and they define love in a lot of different ways. This morning, here's what I want you to do. I would like you to think about love as an expression of the value, the importance, and the worth of another person. Why don't you put that slide up, Carol? Love is an expression of the value, importance, and worth of another person. And as you'll soon see, you are of great value to God. And when it comes to God and for those who love the way God loves, your personal value is intrinsic. And by that, what I mean is it is part of your essential nature. Your value is not based on your behavior, your performance, or your usefulness. Now, this is, this is a paradigm shift for people because we've been raised thinking that our value is tied to our behavior, performance, and usefulness. It is not to God. Now, I had an interesting conversation about love with my four-year-old granddaughter this past Wednesday. You can learn a lot from four-year-olds. I told her, Emma, I love you to the moon and back. And she said, well, Papa, I love you to God and back. I said, Oh, okay, well, yeah, I, all right, okay, that's, that's better. Then she began to ask me several questions about my love for her, and she, the first question she asked, Papa, would you love me if I licked you? <laughs> she just started preschool, and apparently they laid down the law at preschool. <laughs> Thou shalt not lick. Would you, you'll see the next one too. Would you love me if I licked you? Yes, sweetheart. I wouldn't like it if you licked me, but I would, lo- I would still love you. Would you love me if I didn't share with you? Okay, Back, preschool again. This is the lessons of preschool. Yes, Emma, I would love you even if you didn't share with me, but I'd like you to share with me. And then, then, she's, then she goes, well, would you love me if I said I love Mumsy more than you? I said, that's what she calls Susan. I said yes, I certainly would. And even at such a young age, Emma is trying to sort out the basis of love. She's trying to figure this out. And like so many, she was thinking of love in terms of performance and what you do or don't do. But she began to get the idea that I simply loved her and I loved her no matter what. Most people never get past Emma's questions. They go through their lives thinking that their value, that their importance, that their worth is tied to how well they have performed recently. I don't know if you've ever heard uh, this statement, well, what have you done for me today? That used to be something I'd hear, you know, like, oh, all the things, well, what have you done for me today? That's how most people think of their value. Their value to others. And they even take that on as their view of their self-worth. They grow to adulthood and live their lives thinking that love is based on performance and I had better perform and conform so that I will be loved and valued. That's how most people wake up and spend their days. Great numbers of people come to view themselves as damaged goods. That's just the mindset that they have. And... All of us have been damaged, okay? But 
You're not damaged goods. People consider themselves as unlovable unless they repeatedly prove their worth to the world. And what happens then? We become people pleasers and we aim to conform to whatever group would give us a degree of acceptance. And their true worth to God is smothered by an avalanche of feedback that they're not really all that special. And that's the life that we live. That's the life that we grow up. That's the culture that we're in. And it's not just our culture here in America. It's the culture of the world. Christ is the way out of this treadmill of inferiority. And by the way, no baby is born feeling inferior. To feel inferior is a learned attitude. That's actually, it'd be probably better to describe it as feeling inferior is something that has been imposed upon you by a world that is run by a thief. And the devil has done a pretty effective job of robbing people of their sense of security, the sense of security that being loved unconditionally brings. Now, again, many of us are parents. We've all been around small children. I know when, when my, if I pick up one of my grandchildren, they feel safe with me. And when you feel safe with somebody, you can relax, right? You can relax when you're with somebody who loves you unconditionally. If you're with somebody who loves you because of what you're doing, you're not nearly as relaxed. Because I might not be doing as well in five minutes as I am now. I want you to look at Zephaniah, one of the, I hate the, they called Zephaniah and several others the minor prophets. We have the minor prophets and the major prophets. I mean, what is this, baseball? I'll explain to you what a minor prophet is. He's one who wrote a short book. Major prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah, their prophecies took up an entire scroll. But you could get you could get Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. You can get all those guys on one scroll. That's why they called them minor prophets. Their prophecy is just as good. But Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. Here's something to remember. The Lord your God is in your midst. You're not alone. The mighty one will save. He, the mighty one, God, will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Love quiets our souls. When you are with someone who loves you, it gives you peace. And with God, you are always with someone who loves you. When you are constantly in fear of judgment or worried about acceptance versus rejection, your life will be filled with anxiety, and anxiety will rule your soul. But God wants peace to rule our souls. Look at Colossians 3.15. It says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, the word rule there really is akin to an umpire. Let the peace of Christ be the umpire, be the deciding factor in your heart, the peace of Christ. 
We are to allow this peace to be the decisive judge in our lives. So what is this peace of Christ? Or better, I mean, a better way to describe that, what is the peace that Christ had that I should now have? That's really what we're talking about. The peace of Christ, meaning the peace that he lived and experienced, I should live and experience. Look what it says in John 14, 27. It says, this is Jesus speaking, the night before he's betrayed. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Not as the world gives. The world gives an illusion of peace. And peace in the world is generally described as the absence of open conflict. And there may be many times in in people's lives where there is an absence of open conflict, but there's still no peace. Because peace really has to emanate from the inside. And very few people experience that peace in their souls, even when their lives are free from open conflict. The peace that Christ had was not based on his circumstances. Because let's face it, his circumstances were not often favorable. Everywhere he taught, there were people there in active opposition to his message. Everywhere he went. And he also knew what the end run of his ministry was, which was the cross. Well, it's not the end run. The open tomb was the end run, but he knew that to get to the open tomb, he was going to experience the cross. And yet, and the night he's arrested, he knows what's coming. He's read Isaiah. He knows he's going to be beaten and battered beyond recognition. And what does he say? He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. How can someone have peace knowing that they're facing this? Well, they can if their peace is based on something other than their circumstances. Christ was secure in his relationship to God and in God's love for him. Just like my granddaughter is secure that I love her, so she's peaceful around me. Like we went to Costco last week. There's a lot of people in Costco. I picked her up. She's all happy. She's at peace. There's still a lot of people in Costco. But she was at peace. Look what it says in Mark chapter 9. It says, this is on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John went up with Jesus Christ to a mountain, and God transformed him into what his glorious body would be for him and for those that he brought up with him. And it says, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. And we just read that he said, my peace I give to you. Listen to him. God said that Jesus Christ was his beloved son on two separate occasions. On his baptism and here at the Mount of Transfiguration. As a beloved child, he knew. He knew. He was confident that God loved him and that God would care for him. And God feels the same way about you. Oh, yeah, well, of course, Jesus was the beloved son. Christians are called beloved. The exact same word used for Jesus. Christians are called beloved over 40 times in the New Testament. Jesus only had to hear it twice and he picked it up. 
We apparently need to hear a bit more than that. You know, this is how God thinks of you. God looks at you and he says, beloved. He doesn't see the bumps and the bruises. He doesn't see the, the, the difficult journey we've been on. We're beloved. But the question really isn't how God sees us. That doesn't vary. What I'm after is how you see yourself. Do you see yourself as a reflection of what God sees when he looks at you? You know, on several different occasions, Jesus declared that the kingdom of God was at hand or the kingdom of God was near. He, of course, personified that kingdom. We live after the cross, after the resurrection. The kingdom of God isn't near. The kingdom of God is here within us. We have been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son, according to Colossians. And in the kingdom of God, you have great value. Your life may not have much currency in the kingdoms of this world, but in the kingdom of God, you are of great value. And Jesus taught this many, many times. Many of his parables were about your personal value. He had to keep, and these are parables that are repeated in two and three gospels to get the point across. Luke 12, 6, it says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? The absolute most inexpensive offering you could make would be sparrows. Anybody could afford to offer a sparrow. You get five of them for for two pence, and it's, it's even less money than two pence to us. Two cents, it's not even worth two cents in American money. Verse 7, and oh, and not one of them is forgotten before God. The least valuable creature on earth, not one is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. That's, an ex- that's a way of exaggerating. You, you are, your value is inestimable is what that's saying. Several of the parables that Jesus told emphasized our personal value to God. The Good Samaritan is perhaps one of the best known. Samaritans were hated. Samaritans were dismissed. Samaritans were considered useless. And at the heart of that parable was a Samaritan who recognized the value in others. Those that the world considers worthless are worthwhile to God. And the Gospels have several of these parables. I want to look at a couple in Matthew and then a couple in Luke, okay? Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like. See, God, God had Jesus describe the kingdom of heaven in ways that people could sort of relate to in their everyday life. And he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You and I, are the tr- we are the treasure in the field. We are the pearl of great price, and God has sought you out, and he has bought you with his son. This is how he looks at you. He looks at you as very, very valuable. You are precious to him. In Luke chapter 15, there's several parables in Luke 15. It starts off in verse 1. 
Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. I think that's interesting. You all knew who a tax collector was. How did, what do people have name tags? I'm a sinner. <laughs> sinner. Every, but you know what? These were people whose lives were an open book to their communities, and it wasn't a nice story. Okay? So tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. Why did tax collectors and sinners draw near to Jesus? Because he approved of what they were doing? No, he didn't approve of what they were doing. He said on a couple of occasions, go and sin no more. He didn't approve of what... They, they were blessed to be around him because he loved them in spite of where they had been. That's why they, that's why they were happy to be around him. Sinners are never happy to be around religious people. Never. Religious people make everybody uncomfortable. They make you think like you're a sinner even if you're not. Sinners didn't run to hear the Pharisees preach. They didn't gather in multitudes on hillsides to hear the scribes talk. But they did for Jesus. Verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. That's one of the best things that they do. And, you know, it's funny. In Greek, the word grumble sounds like grumbling. It's one of those, what's the figure of speech? Onomatopoeia, where it sounds like what it is. So this is what they were doing. They were always grumbling. And they were saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And this is how Jesus answered them. He didn't answer them by saying, hey, you knuckleheads. These people are worthwhile. He answers them with a story that draws everybody in, and it shows the worth of a soul to an individual, to God, and therefore to us. He says, "What man of you, having a hundred sheep, and a hundred sheep would be a large flock in the ancient world? Okay, that would be large. If he has lost one of them." does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And of course, everybody, yeah, that's right. That's what he do. I get it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So far in this story, everybody is, okay, yeah, I get that. Absolutely. And now we have the Pharisees, who were the minority here. They are criticizing who Jesus has sitting in front of him to hear his words. And he's told them this parable. And now he's going to sum it up for them. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Because you're valuable to God. He loves you. You have a worth to God. You are important to God. He sees the value that he created in you. And we don't see that often. Instead of looking in a true mirror, we're looking in a funhouse mirror that distorts us. Also, further down in Luke, we have a parable that's come down to us being known as the parable of the prodigal son. And this parable, I'm not going to read the whole thing with you, but it illustrates how some people come to feeling worthless. 
they weigh up their actions and activities and attitudes, and the equation equals worthless in their mind. But not in God's. God always sees our intrinsic value, not our bruised experiences. So here in verse 11 it says, this was the younger son, and he said, uh, Jesus is talking, and Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. This, his audience would have been aghast. Your dad isn't even in the grave. You're asking for your inheritance? This is, this is just awful. People are just like, they already hate this guy. From the very, okay, this is the bad guy. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Well, you know what happened. He was left broke and friendless. And in desperation, he decided he would return home and offer himself up as a slave in his father's house because he felt that's all he deserved. At least I could be a slave in my father's house. I'd have enough to eat. So his self-image, based on his actions, he concluded that his father might not even want to have him as a slave in his house. Verse 20. And he, this younger son, arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Jesus was often moved by compassion, it says in Scripture. He saw the pain in another and wanted to alleviate it. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Well, that wasn't the reception he was expecting. And then verse 21, the son had rehearsed this. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Was that a true statement? Yes, it was. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Was that a true statement? No. Not to this father. To some fathers, yes. Sadly, many fathers do not imitate God in their parenting. But not this father. How often do we feel unworthy? And like this prodigal son, we probably have plenty of evidence to document just how unworthy we are. And yet, God still loves us. Look what the father said. He ignores the, he really ignores what his son said. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. That's how God looks at us. He doesn't look at us as the sum total of our failures. Whenever any of us turn to him, he is like the father who's looking for us. The kingdom of heaven has very different standards than those that we have grown up with. God never forgets what he declared in Genesis when he first brought forth man. In Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's what God announced before he brought forth man. He has never forgotten that. He has never wavered from that. You might think that you no longer have this created value, that you are not worthy to be loved. On the outside, even within our hearts, we may be far removed from God's original design, but you have never lost the essence of what God set within you. He created you to be in his image, the image of God himself. What we need to do is to regain in our hearts what has always been there. And to recognize that because of Jesus Christ, he has restored the shine of God's image to wash away our bruises. We are worthy because Christ has made us worthy. Romans talks about this. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Romans, of course, written after the cross, right? For those whom he, God, Foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We were created in the image of God. We are now conformed to the image of his son. All that we might have lost because of Adam and because of our own lifestyles, we have it back in Christ. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice that God is doing all these things. We're not earning it. We're not working our way back. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. The parable. The man sold all that he had to buy the pearl of great price. That's what God did. His own son. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's how many people think of themselves. Chapter doesn't end there, though. It says, no, no. That might be the way you think, but no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are loved. You are valued by God. You are important to God because of Jesus Christ. You are worthy for a place in his kingdom. There's a verse I'd like to close with from the book of Isaiah. It's Isaiah 62.4. It will no longer be said to you, forsaken. Nor to your land will it any longer be said, desolate. But you will be called, my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you. The world might have given you many names. Desolate, forsaken, unworthy, useless. 
Many names are thrown at us. Don't let, them, don't let any of them stick. Don't let any of them stick. Because your real name is, my delight is in her. That's, that's your name. That's, that's how God calls you. That's what he thinks of us. On our own, we might not account for much like the prodigal son. But in Christ, we are God's own possession. He delights in us. We have importance, value, and worth. And I've asked Jessica to close us singing a hymn. It's a hymn. It's an old hymn. Uh, well, let me see. It's not as old as me. Okay. It was uh, still. Thanks, Steve, for that, pointing that out. It was written in 1959, so mid-20th century. And it's a wonderful, godly hymn about the two ways we look at ourselves. We look at ourselves and we have all the evidence that we are unworthy. But he made us worthy. So Jess, why don't you come on up? Unworthy am I of the grace that he gave. Unworthy to hold to his hand. Amazed that our God would reach down to the earth. This love I cannot understand. Unworthy, unworthy, a beggar in bondage and alone. But he made me worthy, and now by his grace, his mercy has made me his own. Unworthy, unworthy, a beggar in bondage and alone. But he made me worthy, and now by his grace, his mercy has made me his own. My sickness and doubt laid the stripes on his back. My sins caused the blood that he shed. My faults and my failures had woven a crown of thorns that he wore on his head. Unworthy, unworthy, a beggar in bondage and alone. But he made me worthy, and now by his grace, his mercy has made me his own. Unworthy, unworthy, a beggar in bondage and alone.
grace. His mercy has made me his own. But he made me worthy, and now by his grace, his mercy has made me his own. Thank you.